0: Good evening. Tonight I would like for us to take a look at Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 6. Uh, If you would, please turn there with me. The passage that we will be looking at tonight deals very explicitly with the way in which man relates to God, and really more importantly, the way God relates to man. The main thrust of this passage and the concepts that I would like for us all to leave with and apply to our lives tonight are these. Man's understanding of God colors every facet of his lives, and the position that Christ holds in our life will determine the very course of our life. Bearing these two indispensable facts in mind, I would like to start to dig into our text. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, He sent word by his disciples, and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. If you would, please bow your head for a moment of prayer. God, let us dig into this text tonight. Let us learn everything we can from it, or at least start to. God, let us digest it and learn to apply it to our lives. God, start with me, allowing me to grasp the concepts set forth in this text. Hallowed be thy name, and may all glory be unto you. Amen. The text begins with the human subject. Our passage begins by describing the human subject hearing of God. When John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word. You see, the human subject is always hearing about God. That is to say that the imminence and reality of God is always evident to us. Whether or not we want to accept or acknowledge that is really beside the point. There is no moment that goes by in which God is not made known in some way. God is always speaking and man is always hearing. However, it is important to note where John was while he was hearing. John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ. John heard God while in a very low station in life. John was hearing God while in a bad place. And as we clearly see from the bulk of the text, the place in life that John was began to color the way he thought of God. John, like us, understood God in a limited, finite way. And he attempted to impose his limited, finite understanding onto a limitless, infinite God. That really doesn't work. It's at this point that I believe we need to understand a very profound aspect of our God. He is bigger than us. He is bigger than our lives. And he is bigger than our perception, our limited finite, temporary perception of Him. Although we see God in a limited way, He is limitless. Although we understand God in our limited, finite context, He is infinite. God will not and cannot be subjected to our human limits, and He will not and cannot conform to our human perception of Him. While our understanding of God may be influenced by our finite circumstances, God Himself is infinitely greater than these circumstances. Even though our situations in life change, God is unchanging. That being said, we are human beings. Like I said, our station in life is not immutable. The world we inhabit, the cultures we identify with, none of these things are unchangeable. However, we more often than not attempt to view that which is passing on the same level that we view that which is eternal. In other words, we often make the mistake of trying to contextualize God of trying to fit God inside of our own box, to limit Him to the finite temporary context of our always changing circumstances. This robs God of His glory. Whenever we attempt to make God anything but God, we are guilty of sin. Whenever we hold an erroneous view of God, we treat Him in an erroneous way. Whenever we treat Him in an erroneous way, which is any way that is not in His will and design, we are guilty of sin. When we try to limit God, we sin. When we try to limit God, we are not relating to God in a right way. And when we are not relating to God in a right way, we are sinning. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples. All right, now, John was not a man of questionable commitment. He was in prison for his preaching. See, John was a man of God. John was the voice crying out in the wilderness, the forerunner of Christ, who went around preaching about the coming Messiah and the need to repent. He was present when the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost in three separate personages were in one place at one time. He was the man who had baptized Christ in the presence of the entire Trinity. Now, if there was anyone besides Christ himself who understood the nature of Christ at this point in Scripture, it was John. However, John was still a human being. John lived a human life, operating under an always changing set of circumstances, always being placed under changing context with changing limitations imposed on him. In our text this evening, he was not in a particularly good context. What we can see from our text is that John was unsure. While John was sitting around in prison waiting for death, he wanted to know that he was not going to die in vain. While John was operating in this particular context, he needed reassurance. That Christ was who he said he was, and that the death he was waiting for was not in vain. See, John needed to know he was not going to die in vain. John needed reassurance. John, the prophet of God, the forerunner of Christ, the first hand witness to the appearance of the entire Trinity, the man who had radically experienced God, grace, holiness, and Christ firsthand, needed reassurance. Why? Because he was human. He was human and he was limited, but our God is gloriously limitless. Circumstance colors perspective, and perspective colors ideas. This is seen in the question which John asked Christ. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? This question marks a very critical point in the text. You see, this is the point where John most needed the reassurance of Christ, when John needed more than second-hand knowledge of what Christ was doing. This is the point when John, the limited human subject, turned to see God in all of his glorious, transcendent limitlessness. John needed substance. John needed truth. John needed life. So John sent word by his disciples. So John goes to the source. John, in need of reassurance, in need of substantive proof that he was not going to die in vain, that he was not living for nothing, goes to Christ. So John sent word by his disciples asking, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? The only way of understanding the limitlessness of God is to go to God. The only way to relate to God in a proper way and to not be guilty of the sin of relating to him improperly is to actually relate to God. To live in a state of constant return to Him. To live in Him. It is of utmost importance that we never lose sight of Christ. That we doggedly cling to Him. That we don't just return to Christ in times of crisis, but that we live in Christ. The highest good in life is life in Christ. This is only possible with a proper understanding of Christ. And a proper understanding of Christ is only possible if we are always moving towards Christ. And the more we move towards Christ, the more we understand Christ, which makes us move towards him even more. And John illustrates this in an abundantly clear way. John makes the movement towards Christ at the same time that he questions Christ. And this is precisely what we are called to do as believers. The greatest good in life is to follow Christ. And when we follow Christ, we understand Him more, regardless of our circumstances. And this understanding colors our ideas of Him. And our ideas of Him color our walk with Him. So John questions Christ. John returns directly to God incarnate, to His liberator and deliverer, and questions Him. When the human subject seeks to know and to understand and to relate to God, the human subject must engage with God. Abraham engaged God. Job engaged God. And John engaged God. But I want to go back to the second one. Um, In Job 42, 4-5, Job speaks to God, saying, Here, and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Now, I'd like to kind of go a little off track for a second. It's always good when a pastor says that. Uh, Sight, particularly in the historical context of Scripture, was viewed with particular importance. To see a thing was to know a thing. You see, to hear a thing or to feel a thing was not on par with seeing a thing. To see a thing was to tangibly know a thing. And this is part of the reason why blindness was such a taboo in Hebraic culture. Of all the disabilities, blindness was really the worst one because you couldn't know anything because you couldn't see anything. So for Job to say, but now my eye sees you is for him to say, but now I truly know you. Now I am fully aware of your existence in a real tangible way. Job set a precedent that was echoed by John and remains crucial to every human being alive today. The human subject was made to engage with God. Our very essence is that of relation. Our very purpose is to engage with and relate to God. We are called to question God, and He will make Himself known to us. We are not called to merely hear of God secondhand, but to live in God to experience God to as Job said see God John answered and Jesus answered them here we see the repetition of a theme that is crucial throughout scripture man questions God God answers here we see God speaking into the life of the human subject here we see the powerful authoritative word of God spoken into the life of a human being just like ourselves just like you and me God answered Abraham when Abraham engaged God. God answered Job when Job engaged God. God answered John when John engaged God. And God still speaks through his word today to all of us. John questioned and Christ made it known to him. The Greek word used in this passage for answered is apokronomai. Translated literally, the word means to respond or to speak. However, a deeper look at the entomology of the word allows us to understand the full extent of its meaning. The root of apokrinomai is apo, meaning out of. And the suffix of this word is krino, which means judgment. So for Jesus to speak apokrinomai is for him to answer out of his own mouth from his own divine judgment. John questioned Christ, needing substantive proof of the Messiahhood of Christ. And Christ responds out of divine judgment. Judgment out of divine wisdom from His own holy mouth. God responds to man with substance because God is substance. Christ does not provide us with light answers to light questions. Christ responds with substance. Christ responds with life. Christ is life. It was out of divine judgment and discernment that the divine Messiah responded to John with a substantive, concrete message. Christ reiterates the very gospel itself. And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one... Who is not offended by me. Jesus instructs John's disciples to report what they hear and see. Uh, here again we can see the repetition of what is found in John 42, 4 through 5. Christ is letting John hear with the hearing of the ear, but is also allowing him to see, albeit not in a literal physical sense. He's allowing John to know him in a palpable, tangible, real, affecting way. Christ responds to John's question by referring to concrete, substantive action. Christ responds to John's question with a thing that John already knew. He responds authoritatively to John's doubt with the gospel, the substantive, authoritative gospel that impacts the entire course of human life. The gospel impacts us in a way that is eternal, that is bigger than anything we experience apart from it. The gospel impacts us in a way that is more profound than any finite context, a way that is bigger than the walls of any prison John could have ever found himself in. Christ came to accomplish a divine purpose. Christ came to live out the gospel, which we see in his response to John's question. And any attempt to view Christ in any other way is skewed, and you will not relate to Christ in a right way if you do not acknowledge the centrality of this gospel. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Christ, with all the authority of a holy God incarnate, recounts the giving of sight to the blind. Those who are incapacitated walk by the grace of Christ, Those who were and are unclean are purified by the grace of Christ. Those who were and are dead are raised by the grace of Christ. Those who are poor and wretched and despised heard from the mouth of Christ by the grace of Christ. The good news of just how extensive this grace is and always will be. This same grace applies to us. The grace of Christ opens our eyes. The grace of Christ moves us to action. The grace of Christ cleanses us of our impurities. The grace of Christ raises us from the death that is inherent to our lives apart from it to the action that is part and parcel of our lives in it. Accordingly, Christ gives us a real tangible gospel. Christ gives us a real life-altering grace that liberates us from the death and pointlessness of life in sin, of death in sin. Christ, in His grace, liberates us from the meaninglessness of life with the meaningfulness of His gospel. Christ does not only answer questions, He gives us reassurance of the great truth of His life, death, and resurrection. He gives us life, The truth of the gospel is the only thing that can give reassurance and meaning. The truth of the gospel is the ultimate truth. It is only through the deliverance of a Messiah who raises us from our death and restores us from the poverty of our sin that we can obtain the only form of true life, which is life renewed and made pure by Him and His grace and His grace alone. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Christ is subversive by his very nature. This whole gospel, this whole idea of a God loving us in spite of our sin is very subversive. Christ goes against the grain of most religious tradition, most sets of values, most mores, most ethics, most of the finite things we are taught to value and equate with the infinite. Christ is subversive because we don't deserve Christ. Christ is subversive because He gives us love that we didn't earn. We deserve the death of sin. We deserve the just punishment for our sin. We deserve hell apart from God, but God loves us anyway. See, Christ's will is infinitely larger and greater than our own. Christ's subversive offensive love is gloriously larger than anything we can wrap our heads around. And See, we as human beings do not like to acknowledge this. You see, even though our finite temporal circumstances may be good or they may be bad, they are, well you know, finite, temporary. We can wrap our heads around them. It's easier for us to swallow the fact that we've lost our job or lost a scholarship or have gotten some kind of illness than it is for us to wrap our heads around and stomach the fact that there's a God who is greater than us, bigger than us, and deserves or could justly punish us the way we deserve, but loves us anyway. That is hard for us to get our heads around, and frankly, we don't like it. We can stomach things that are temporal and earthly, but that which is eternal is scandalous to us. It is human nature to be offended by Christ. The human subject is naturally scandalized by this utter greater-thanness of Christ. The very fact that the will of Christ is greater and more magnificent than our understanding is scandalous to us because we're rational creatures with an ingrained desire to understand. In fact, if you look at the word in the passage used for offended... We'll find that it is the Greek skandaliso, from which we get our word scandalized, and it also translates to cause, to stumble, or to set out a trap. Now, setting out a trap and causing someone to stumble over, that's, that's pretty vivid imagery. Christ is a stumbling block. Christ is, by his very nature, something that the human subject struggles to understand and can never truly understand. Christ and His grace is a scandalous mystery, a glorious absurdity bigger than anything, including the human mind that attempts to understand it. When man encounters Christ, He is completely undone. This fact is abundantly clear in Isaiah 8, verse 15. If you would, please turn to that passage in your copies of the Word. Speaking of the coming Messiah... Isaiah describes Him as a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Because God is infinitely greater than and more than, He is infinitely holy. Because He is infinitely holy, He is always an affront to that which is unholy, such as us, such as me, such as you. Accordingly, the unholy human will always find the infinite, glorious, always greater than himself holiness of God to be offensive, to be a stumbling block, to be something that breaks him and undoes him at the very core of what he is. When we encounter the eternal God, we will be broken. We will fall and be broken, but we will also be snared and taken up, we will also be ensnared and taken up in the grace of the God who breaks us. Christ breaks us, and in breaking us, he saves us. Christ came to this earth to enact the gospel. The gospel has the most profound impact on the human subject. When Christ gives us the sight to see our sin, raises us from the death of our sin, and restores us from the poverty of our sin, He also breaks us of our sin. And whenever we begin to lose sight of Him in this sinful world, be it by circumstance, confusion, or simply return to the very sin from which He broke us, He will break us again, and He will take us back up again. Christ is our rock of offense, the destruction of our sinful nature, and the liberator of our lives. John was in prison But the words of Christ, the reassurance that he was able to obtain from the authoritative word of God, liberated him at the same instant that it undid him. It liberated him in a way that was incomprehensibly profound. And this is the liberation that we find in being broken by God. This is the liberation that we find in the gospel. I would like to take another brief aside here. I'm not saying by any means that Temporal, earthly things do not matter. I think a cursory look at history shows us that the economic systems we support, the social orders we condone, the political decisions we make are vastly important. These are things that have a real impact on our day-to-day lives, our politics, our social efforts, our cultural identities, our careers, our education. These are valuable, yes. These are important, most definitely, but they are temporary. They're not here forever. These are things that pale... In comparison to the gospel. And these are things that are going to cause us to be broken if we put them on par with the gospel. While the temporal is important, it pales in comparison to the gospel. It pales in comparison to the truth that Christ is our liberator, redeemer, restorer, Lord, and Messiah, to the truth that He was, is, and always will be the one who is to come. Everything pales in comparison to the glory of Christ's redemptive gospel. This gospel is of utter centrality. Christ is of utter centrality. Christ is not the subject of the temporary and the worldly. Christ is the God and master who allows the temporary and the worldly to be possible in the first place. When the human subject is offended by Christ, he will find himself completely undone. Christ, in his love and grace, will break us, will snare us and take us so that we are completely his. His grace is so beautiful, so magnificent that even our doubts and reservations, even our attempts to put something above Him only allows for more grace. All of our brokenness shows the greatness of His grace. The very, very last part of Christ's response is interesting in one way aside from the ones we have already mentioned. As was typical of Christ, He responded with authority. And he reiterated the gospel. Both of these characteristics can be found in nearly all of Christ's exchanges with other people. However, the very last line is unusual. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. See, this is a negative command. This is not Christ giving us an imperative to do something, but he's given us an imperative not to do something. Usually Christ would say something along the lines of love your neighbor love me with all your heart, mind, and soul, do unto others as you would have done unto yourself, all, all positive active actions, active things it 's really interesting for him to say, don't do something. Now we have seen what it looks like to actively be offended by Christ. We have seen what it looks like when the human subject is offended by Christ, when he encounters him as a stumbling block, when he is broken. We see that when Christ is subordinated to finite, contextual, temporary, worldly things, the one who attempts to subordinate Christ is broken. Christ must be viewed in a proper way. Christ will make himself be viewed in a proper way because Christ is Christ. However, we are not instructed to be offended by Christ. On the contrary, Christ says, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. What does it mean to not be offended by Christ? What does it look like to not be offended by the Messiah? To not be offended by Christ is simply to see Him in a proper way, to relate to Him in a proper way. That is, to not be offended by Christ is to hold Him in proper regard, to reconcile the fact that He is utterly incomprehensible with the reality of His existence and the truth of His gospel. To not be offended by Christ is to be broken, but then to be ensnared in the grace of Christ and to allow yourself to acknowledge His greatness and His holiness instead of trying to run and hide from His greatness and His holiness. Once His holiness is acknowledged, He is related to in a proper way. And when He is related to in a proper way, we can live our lives in the most fulfilling way. When Christ takes the position of utmost eminence, In the life of the human subject, when he is related to in a proper way, not as a rock of stumbling, but as a Lord, then the the priorities of the human subject change radically. As the Messiah himself said to the Father, we say to the Messiah, not my will, but yours be done. When Christ is viewed in a proper way, the entire focus of our lives shift to accomplishing his divine will. Again... Not so much that the temporary and the earthly is unimportant and irrelevant, but it's, it's subordinated to this, to accomplishing Christ's divine will. More so, when the focus of our lives shift, the actions that we take are altered radically. And how do they shift? And what do these actions look like? Our actions come in line with the will and command of God. The actions which are in line with the will and command of God are seen very clearly in the passage that we have just been focused on this evening. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. These are the things that Christ spent his life doing. These are the things that our Lord and Savior did with passion and died for with passion. These are things that we, as believers, are called to live for. We are called to live solely for the propagation of the gospel. We live solely for the propagation of our Savior and our Lord. And this is made evident in every aspect of our lives, even those temporal things that are subordinated to this. This is made evident in how we go about our careers, how we go about our education. This is what it means to not be offended by Christ. To not be offended is to encounter Christ as God, and to encounter God is to serve. As believers, we must care for the sickness of this world after the heart of the great physician whose will we are here to live out. As believers, we must do our part in leading and guiding the blind so that they may have sight in Christ. As believers, we must earnestly propagate the gospel so that we may see the dead of this world raised and those who are poor and wretched and in the position of sin to be lifted up into a new life with Christ. This is the only thing that matters. This is what we live for. This is the gospel. For those of you in the room who are not believers, I would ask that you be broken. I would ask that you encounter Christ I would ask that you understand that you live under a universal human condition, a condition that explains the aggregate sum of human suffering in the world. This condition is sin. This condition is what makes us, as one of my personal favorite philosophers said, all too human. Sin is the death of us. Sin is the death of us at the very heart of what we are. Sin is the sickness that plagues our hearts, minds, and lives, evident in every moment of heartache, every war, every sleepless night wondering why life feels so hollow. Sin is what reduces us to the poverty of absolute wretchedness. Sin is what limits us to the point where all we can acknowledge is the temporary and the finite, to the point where we try to find meaning in the arbitrary, inconsistent thing we call life and we don't find any meaning. Sin is the sickness of man. Sin is death. I would ask that you consider the actions of Christ, who, as the Scriptures say, came so that the dead, the sin-plagued human, could be raised, and the poor, that is those living in this existential poverty of sin, could have the good news preached to them. This is the good news. Through faith in Christ, you can be delivered from sin. I would ask that you be offended by this truth, that you be scandalized by your sin and the existence of a God who loves you in spite of it. I would ask that you consider the incomprehensible love of Christ who took on the wrath reserved for you and for me and for everyone in this room this evening, who took on the death that belongs justly to us and overcame it by resurrecting from the grave, victorious over the great death of sin, that you might be delivered from it. I would ask that you then allow God to ensnare you in His grace so that you can be offended by Him no more. I want to see you do what you are wired to do, relate to God through His grace as expressed by the death of His Son. For those of us who have been delivered from our sin, encounter Christ, encounter Him in all of His glory as Lord. Be undone. Be broken so that you can be taken up again and enraptured in grace and made right with Him. Live your life in a constant encounter with Christ as divine and sovereign Lord so that your actions serve to glorify Him and to propagate His gospel. I would ask that you become so ensnared in the grace of God to the point that it fills you up and the only reasonable course of action is to let that flow out into every aspect of your lives. In just a minute, the band will come up, and we'll resume play. The altar will be open for any decision.